keeping it real as the flow of funds for sustainable investment has increased almost to a torrent, so sadly as the practice of greenwashing. How do investors weed out the hype? How do they identify the real thing? Welcome to Organising the Future with me, Andrew Parry. I'm head of investment at J.O. Hambro Capital Management. One point of this podcast is to help investors solve that simple puzzle. Where does the reality of sustainable investment end? And where does the hyperbole begin? One woman who has been at the sharp end of that question is Desiree Fixler, who I'm delighted to stay, say is my guest today. Desiree, of course, sprang to the headlines when she blew the whistle on what she saw as an exaggerated set of claims at DWS, the Frankfurt-based asset management subsidiary of Deutsche Bank. Desiree, welcome. We're truly honored to have you here today, and it's great to see you again. Thank you for having me. That's a real pleasure. Now, Desiree, let's get to know you a little bit better. You're a tough, no-nonsense investment banker from New York. How the heck did you get into sustainable investment? Uh, my best friend um, had noticed that I was becoming a little bit too self-absorbed, too into my career, too Wall Street. Uh, and she sent me a book called Banker to the Poor by Dr. Muhammad Yunus. And this was 2004, I think. I was at J.P. Morgan, wonderful firm, uh, but I read this book and my world just changed. I understood from this book, it's about the proliferation of microfinance, that I would be able to combine my Wall Street structuring skills, specifically I was in securitization, structured credit, and into uh, a positive impact strategy such as financial inclusion. And that was the start of my journey into ESG, into sustainable investing. You know, I just find it always fascinating the way that people from that background actually suddenly have that moment where they realize there's something, an extra dimension you know, to finance and that your know, finance can actually have that, you know, that power for good. You know, I can sometimes remember that I, I ran a hedge fund myself, and it, it, it is a really, it's really interesting to see the ESG movement at the moment, often forgetting the word investing. And how did you find that sort of, that history that you had in the space was actually informing your thinking on how to actually make sustainable investment real? Uh, it's about scale, you know, so... When I first entered, you know, in the mid-2000s, it wasn't called ESG. It was socially responsible investing. And I thought my contribution here would be Wall Street um, or capital market scale. And that's what really differentiated me. I did not have a background, clearly, um, in, in climate action, in um, poverty alleviation, but what I did know was the institutional capital markets, and I thought, wow, I can reformat. I can bring these impact strategies onto the trading floor, and that's where you get scale because the funding gaps, right? A lot of these impact deals or socially responsible deals were quite small. The products on offer were small, and I thought, I can bring this to scale by harnessing the power and the might of the fixed income markets, for example. So that was my thinking, was very much, let me, let me learn and contribute at the same time. I can trade my Wall Street structuring skills 
for the learning, um, you know, initially it was all about the S for me. It was about learning about microfinance and financial inclusion. And, and as I'm learning, right, I can contribute with, you know, with structuring and an introduction to fantastic folks, but, you know, more, you know, folks from the NGO nonprofit world, you know, that were living and breathing development aid and introduce them to the scale and the might of the capital markets. I've always struck when I go to the United States and, and talk about sustainable investing, impact investing, how the emphasis there is on the social dimension and and really very quite deep, you know, firms committing to positive affirmation, you know, really thinking very deeply about it. Whereas in Europe, it's very much focused on the environmental side. And it's just really interesting to see how we, we all have a different perspective. It is. And I think, but that, I think that, that, that ties into, um, you know, the histories of, of both places, meaning, you know, Europe post-World War II or post-World World War One became more socialistic minded, right? And the state was there to help out. Whereas in the U.S., right, it's more rugged individualism. And so philanthropy was much greater, right? So, you know, folks in America have always been socially minded that we need to be civically minded. We need to, you know, help our communities, help our cities. It is an obligation. We can't rely on the state to do it, right? We don't have a strong of a welfare state. And I think that's one of the reasons why, and, and I totally agree with you, the U.S. has been more socially minded. Um, and, and Europe, of course, you know, has had the welfare state there and then, you know, kind of moved on to focus on, of course, you know, environmental, you know, catastrophe, very, very needed. And I'm really pleased to see the U.S. finally catching up there. And how has that sort of uh, interaction between Wall Street and the NGOs and the social enterprises, did you find you were speaking the same language? No. <laughs> um, you know, in fact, I would call myself at times um, chief translation officer. Right, that was my job because, you know, so, and we know this in practice, you know, we all have our own lingo. Like every market has its own acronyms and, and lingo. And so much was just lost in translation, right? Both sides, you know, had, had were well-intentioned, but, you know, separated by um, just, there were just cultural and, 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 and language issues. And that was my job to bridge that gap. And how did you find the bridging of the issue of scale? It's always an interesting concept for me in the impact space because we, we want to scale the impact, but scale on Wall Street is something very different to scale on a social enterprise. You know, one might be talking in hundreds of thousands of dollars and the other one talking in billions or trillions. You know, how did Wall Street cope with sometimes you, scaling a social enterprise is not about trillions or billions. You're absolutely right. And therein is the issue of greenwashing, right? Um, where, or, or controversy when it comes to ESG, right? That, you know, we've diluted ESG at times to meaninglessness, right? So I totally agree. So that, that's the problem is that sometimes with scale, you have mission drift, right? You're not as impactful because you're trying to uh, appeal to everyone, right, and and dilute it to get the volumes, right. So, it, so it, without a doubt, that is a huge challenge, right. But one that we have to, you know, work on. 
We have been so hugely successful in the last couple of years in mobilizing trillions of dollars into ESG strategies. But, you know, what have we achieved? Emissions are going up. And I don't think that we find ourselves in a more, you know, fair, just society, right? So now I think, you know, we've realized, right, we're good at raising money and structuring ESG products, um, but we're not good yet at impact. And that, that's the, I think that's, we're at, we're at the crossroads right now where, you know, there's been, I mean, that's, this, this, this year has been the wake up call year, I think, right? Where, you know, folks are both, both asking two questions. Are we delivering on pledges? And, you know, how impactful is, is all this money and, and attention in ESG if carbon emissions are still going up? And ESG as a label might be very good for marketing, but what about real world outcomes? That, look, you've mentioned greenwashing. You know, we, we have to talk about uh, uh, your experience at DWS. Um, fascinating, fascinating to hear you know, your, your reflections on that. You know, it's, it's not just in the public domain, but, you know, it, it's quite an experience. You know, being a whistleblower in itself is, is quite something, but, you know, what went, what went on? How, how did you find it? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I mean, you know, when I started out in investment banking, I never in my wildest dreams thought I'd end up here. Um, but it was actually, I ended up here because of my Wall Street training, right? And because I lived through the great financial crisis and I had to work through Dodd-Frank and the Volcker Rule, right? So, you know, Wall Street post-crisis is a very different place. There's almost paranoia now on the trading floor. Um, there are so many new regulations. And, and so, you know, the one piece of learning, right, from the great financial crisis is that the test on a product, right, is not whether or not the product, the investment that you're offering uh, investors, you know, complies with the letter of the law. It's also about the spirit of the law. Right? Are we arbing anything? Are we going around regulation? Are we trying to take a shortcut? Right? Are we, you know, painfully accurately marketing the risk of this product? And that was a huge lesson that I learned. I was not like that before the crisis. Right? I was. I drank the Kool Aid, and the more financially engineered and leveraged the product was and opaque, the better. We made more money. That's as far as I thought. Right? But then. Of course, we learned through the great financial crisis the consequences of our action, right? And we were all so siloed and, and, and thought financial engineering was a good thing. And so that's, that, that, that was the big lesson that I had from, from the financial crisis is post-crisis, it's all about very clear disclosure and absolute full compliance to all regulations. So this concept of mis mis-selling, misrepresentation, right, was, was very clear in my mind. And on Wall Street, right, you know, in New York, you know, we have a regulator that is extremely switched on. And so that was, that was an issue where, you know, we would always second guess ourselves. Are we clear enough, right? Have we, you know, have we properly explained the product to our investors? So that's why when when the issues at DWS came up, for me it was just it was it was a compliance situation. I wasn't thinking at the time greenwashing. 
I was thinking SEC and DOJ misrep and misselling. And of course, plenty of others have uh, joined in the party. This is not just a DWS, you know, issue. That it's the I think a part of the problem is the siren call of you know being able to sell product of client demand and even of the regulatory push as we've been pushed towards doing more sustainable products. So it's encouraged people to to rush towards that. And I think that's one of the challenges that we all have in this business is meeting both the spirit and the letter of yeah. the law, meeting client aspirations, but also meeting our primary job, which is to make them money, yes. ideally in a responsible, sustainable, impactful way, but also recognizing yeah. that there are some challenges, some trade-offs. There's no win-win scenario. It's absolutely very true. And that's why the starting point in recognizing that we're in a very nascent market without standardized reporting requirements just yet, that the onus is now on, on us to be as clear and transparent with the description, the objectives of a product, because right, it's very hard for investors to compare apples to apples. And the onus, again, is you know, we need to be really accurate and, and ensure that investors understand what a particular product is about because too often ESG, can, you know, for investors, ESG can mean impact and it just simply doesn't, not necessarily. And how would you sort of, you know, in your own mind, differentiate between ESG? I should remind our, our, our listeners that environmental, social and gov governance issues. How would you sort of describe the difference between ESG and impact? How do, how do you think of that differentiation between these two very different concepts? Yeah, and it, it is, and, and, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll explain it, but, you know, it's tough. Right? What I'm about to say is, is really tough for so many investors, both institutional and retail. So, you know, from a practitioner's point of view, ESG largely falls into two camps. You know, one is how the outside world affects a company and that is about risk management, right? That's about optimizing financial performance, right? So how does a company navigate a new, uh, a changing world, a changing world because of adverse weather patterns, regulatory changes, consumption changes, consumption preference changes, right? And so it's very much about the company, right? Um, navigating this new world and making sure that the company can perform and make money. The second part of ESG is, of course, about impact investing. And that's about how the company affects the outside world, right? What does the, how, what, what type of impact does the company have on society, positive or negative? And that's about impact investing, right? So where investors, you know, invest in portfolios that, fight climate change, or portfolios that are about clean infrastructure, portfolios that, that again, um, you know, address and, and get rid of um, financial exclusion. It's about, you know, again, products and services on, you know, financial exclusion and in inclusion. So, so these are two very different concepts. And it's, you know, we practitioners might understand that, but it's very difficult for investors to differentiate. You know, when they see a product that says ESG best in class, or they see a product that says sustainable development goal aligned, 
they are thinking that it's impact, right? And it can be misleading because oftentimes a product that says ESG can simply be a portfolio of right, high-performing technology companies, Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, right? Whereas the investor was thinking that, you know, he or she is investing in clean technology or clean energy, in renewable energy, and that's very, very different. It's the danger of labels. You know, labels can give that sense of it being aligned to a certain set of values, but the problem is we all have different values. You know, I was joke that sometimes one person's values is another person's uh, good night out, you know. So I think that's the challenge the industry is still struggling with. How does it cope between thinking of environmental and social and, and uh, governance issues as inputs into the investment decision making and how that's communicated with impact, which ultimately are the consequences of human activity and how we manage them as either finding solutions to those challenges or as mitigating them through risk management. And as you said, they're very different things, input versus consequences. There's a, a big division, but the language we use can get very, Absolutely. very confused. And that's why we have to do a better job on, on disclosure, transparent disclosure. Um, and, I, and I absolutely agree with you. I think a lot of impact investing is very subjective, right? So it's not necessarily, as an asset manager, um, it's not up to me to tell my investors how to invest or to tell an investor if nuclear is good or bad, right? Or if Tesla is good or bad. But it is my job as an asset manager to explain the strategy and the investment process that portfolio managers go through and the conviction and, you know, the 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 mindset of of the positioning of that product, right? That it is, right, that nuclear is considered sustainable, right? And and I think that, that that sort of level and detail of disclosure is necessary in this market because investors might not know. They might not understand, you know, for example, that, you know, corporate engagement, you know, transition strategies can be impactful. And it needs to be spelled out because it's awfully confusing. And the EU's taxonomy endeavoured to do that, but in some ways in almost excruciating detail. And we found that the Sustainable Financial um, you know, Directive has actually added confusion because it's not a label, it's a disclosure regime. Um, Article 8 and 9, Article 6 has become a pejorative term. So ironically, it sort of encouraged people almost to, to greenwash I absolutely agree. I, I totally, I, I would absolutely say that, that it was well-intentioned, but there's an aspect to SFDR that enables greenwashing. And unfortunately, I managed to even say it wrong. So it just shows the, the joys of acronyms. We, we, we shouldn't <laughs> hide behind them. We've used ESG too much in, the, in this absolutely. conversation. But I think this, that I think that while the EU was well-intentioned with this motherload of, you know, this Sustainable Finance Action Plan. Um, I, I think that it's it's actually become quite dangerous to investors, um, and and again, it it has enabled um, greenwashing. I think that the enforcement actions that have recently happened, and enforcement actions on the part of the SEC and on the German authorities, 
have done much more in deterring greenwashing and have done much more at raising the bar of good practice in the ESG market than all of these EU um, new regulations. I think the EU regulations have gotten way too much in the weeds and have enabled a lot of asset managers to um, tick certain boxes, right, and 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 to game the rules, right, uh, under this 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 label of Article Eight or Article Nine, whereas you know nothing is like a police action or the SEC enforcing and financially penalizing a company and naming and shaming that does more to clean up a market. So I, I think that Europe needs to um, focus more on supervision and enforcement on a high level, adhering to, again, the US approach of you know, avoiding or focusing on disclosure to investors. And disclosure in a key way of actually how it's linked to the investment objective. Yes. And I personally think that one of the challenges that we had with the whole disclosure regime, and it's not just in Europe, it's elsewhere, was that the word investing was often missed out, that we actually forgot that we had to link it to the beginning of the process, which is what your purpose is and your you know, the strategy or how it's serving a client and what the investment objective is. It started with how do we achieve a label and then worked its way back. And it was inevitably going to be messy and difficult. So you're right, it's interesting that the enforcement actions are sharpening the mind, but I think they're sharpening them back to what we're about. We want to be good investors, responsible investors, understanding our uh, footprint on the world, the consequences of the actions of the companies and entities in which we invest and how we manage that and how we encourage and you know, support change, which is ultimately what the EU Sustainable Finance Directive was all about, was to encourage real economic change, not just to be a nice shiny set of labels to be conveniently used for marketing. Right. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I hope um, that you know European financial authorities are taking on board, right? What's happening in the mar in the market, right? I hope that they're, they're taking on board, um, you know, comments and suggestions on on like how to sharpen these the, the like the this motherload of, of regulation because, um, you know, the, the the taxonomy rather than mobilizing more investment into clean energy, um, you know, the market has just been fighting on whether or not. Right, natural gas and nuclear should be labeled sustainable. Right, that's this like sort of the these sort of um, conversations are not helpful. Right, it's 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 more important I think for a financial regulator to focus on investor protection and ensuring that asset managers and asset owners are transparently disclosing risk and and objectives and strategies in the investment product. I'd like to change tack a little bit and just talk about the whole experience of being a, um, a whistleblower. You know, a woman as a whistleblower. Being, being whistleblowers is not an easy experience. You know, there's lots, you know, we've seen this in other parts of the financial industry or in the healthcare sector or, or across all industries. How have you found the experience? Yeah, it's... Um 
I don't know why this just came to mind, but it's a, a bit like childbirth. Like, you're not supposed to think about it. You just do it. Um, and, you know, it, it, you just, I was in a situation, and I think a lot of executives would have done what I did, right? I, there was just no way we were clearly discussing problems and issues at the company, and there was no way I was going to sign off on misrepresenting the struggles that we had. There was no way I was going to sign off on bogus numbers, inflated ESG numbers. There was no way I was going to sign off on inflated descriptions of the firm's ESG capabilities, right? Because, you know, the SEC will at some point come in and the SEC is going to ask you to substantiate your statements in your annual report, in your marketing material, you know, in your, you know, press releases. And we didn't have anything to substantiate these numbers and statements. And so it was just, you know, I pushed back and I pushed back naturally. No, we'll get in trouble for this. And, and, and you know, the other thing that I added is that we don't have to do this, right? We're not forced to disclose this. Um, and, and, and so I never thought of myself as a whistleblower at that point. I thought of myself as a, I was a sustainability officer and I thought of myself as more of a compliance officer. I'm here to protect the firm, right? And so I thought what I'm doing was good for the management board. It's good for the company. Um, I never, I, I never thought um, I was a problem. I didn't find out I was a problem until I was fired. What about the future? How, you know, now that you've been a whistleblower. Um, it should be a positive thing, but it's often seen as a pejorative term. You know, have you the dust has settled, the reality is sort of dawned on 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 the rest of the world. But you know, what does the what does the future hold for you? How are you finding that post blowing the whistle yeah. experience? It took a lot a lot of getting used to. Um, it wasn't natural. I mean, I'm I'm naturally an outspoken person. <laughs> no You're a New that. Yorker. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, uh, but I was a corporate person, and I was outspoken um, in protection of the corporation, right, in support of the corporation. It's been very different. Now I'm outside, um, and I don't have a compliance group or a communications group. I can just say it. Now, obviously, I have to say truthful things. I can't just lie and mislead the market. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a very unique position. And at the beginning, I, I very much struggled with it, right? There was a good and bad to this position. The bad is that I didn't have a job, no financial security, right? No structure to my day, an uncertain future. Um, the good was that I could finally come out and say what so many and, and myself, what we were thinking right, that there was a lot of BS in the market. The ESG market became inflated. I'm still a big believer in sustainable investing, but it hubris set in, bad practice set in, and greenwashing was pervasive. And the, the industry became, or this market became a bit smug, right, self-congratulating itself on pledges, on statements, on aspirations but not congratulating itself on outcomes because guess what? Emissions were, 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 are, are still going up, 
right? There was nothing that, there, there's nothing yet that has concretely been achieved. Yes, there's, you know, awareness. That's been, that's wonderful. But concretely, actually confronting or successfully fighting climate change, we haven't done it yet, right? So there, there, there was, there was this smugness that, that, and this, this green bubble that I think that needed to be popped. And, and I was, you know, my situation became public and I was in a position where I could just say it. And I think, and others are saying it, by the way, it's not just me. And I think that what's happened is like this bad situation, both, both for me personally getting fired and getting fired publicly, right? As well as, right, DWS getting investigated um, for greenwashing culminating in a police raid, I think is going to lead to a lot of good in the market. I think that it's forced the market to market itself to market, right? And, and it's forced this correction. And, you know, to ask itself again, this integrity question, we're saying it, right? We're saying lots of great things and we're feeling really good about it. And we're patting ourselves on the back. But are we doing it? Are we really, what are we achieving? And, and I think that, that that will shake out, you know, a lot of the bad actors here and a lot of the hot air, right? It's going to shake out a lot of bad practice. And I think what a correction does, like any market correction, it strengthens good practice and it forces everyone to raise the bar on performance. And I think, I, I think that while we have a lot of challenges, right? I think that we have more energy, we have a better mindset to focus on impact, right? Um, and I think there's more fear in the market and fear does a lot, right? Um, to stop, you know, people from exploiting ESG for marketing purposes, right? And, you know, a lot of executives are gonna think twice about, you know, using this market just for fundraising, for a fundraising bonanza. And, you know, it's the wake up call that if you say it, you've got to do it, right? And you got to do it impactfully. So you're going to be coming back to a job in finance, do you think? Uh, I, you know, I, I am, right? My role is no longer as a corporate person, but now it's morphed into, um, I, I have, and it's weird, even for me to say it, but more of an activist role, right? And it's, you know, I do a lot of, I'm speaking a lot, maybe sometimes too much, but uh, you know, I've taken on this role of you know being able to challenge the market, right? And to have you brought up win-win, you know, you know, Andrew. So many times when we go to these conferences, everyone was on stage agreeing with each other, right? It was also one way. Yeah, the echo chamber. Yes, right. And now finally, right? It we have authentic and raw conversations. We have debate. That is so healthy. That's what makes a market, right? And so that is my job. You know, I'm, I'm a challenger, right? Um, you know, I'm out there. I'm provoking, um, and not just in pointing out problems, but also hopefully, you know, a lot of what I focus on is is solutions, largely around disclosure, right, and corporate governance, right. But that's what I'm doing right now. I'm I'm doing a lot of speaking engagements and also a lot of advisory work. And I think that this is where I'm supposed to be, right? That I'm supposed to be, you know, engaging with the, with the market 
you know, the entire market, right? Not just with my particular, you know, field, investment bankers or asset managers, but also in engaging standard setters, um, regulators, the academic world, right? All the great nonprofits, right? And, and that's what I'm able to do and I'm able to do it directly and authentically. It's all about system change and that's why we have to involve all parts of the value chain yep. and engage in an open, honest, and sometimes challenging set of conversations. We yep. have to be. As and you say, sensitive, very sensitive, yep. But provocative at the same time. Yep. You know, I think we have to, you know, challenge some of the, the, the well-worn tropes in the space. We have to avoid phrases like win-win, you know, because yep. there are often trade-offs. There are choices that society is going to make and they, they, sometimes they will be tough. And I think that is the healthy part of where we are in the debate at the moment. We're actually having a debate. We're having the skepticism. We're having the downright yep. denial. But we're able to have a dialogue that it goes beyond labels. Absolutely. And this market is facing incredible challenges, um, macroeconomic challenges and also political challenges. And we, the ESG or sustainability market, need to get our act together to be stronger to confront, right, these external challenges, right, the anti-woke capitalist movement, right, as well as, right, natural macroeconomic challenges such as, you know, inflation and energy security. And if we're not together and stronger, right, meaning with, you know, being more honest and, and raising the bar at practice, Right, we're not going to be able to scale this market, and we do need to scale it. We need to scale it for the the, the climate change fight. It's been fascinating as always talking to you. Now, I normally end uh, my conversations with, with my podcast guests by asking them about their sort of the bull and bear. You know, taking you back to your Wall Street days. You know, but, but and it doesn't have to be about markets itself. But what are you optimistic about? And what are you most pessimistic about? Oh, my goodness. Um, I am optimistic um, about two things, about activism, right? The new generation being very vocal and, you know, telling it like it is um, and being very values aligned. Um, I'm optimistic about our focus on setting reporting standards right, initiatives such as the ISSB, sorry to use another acronym, um, uh, and initiatives such as the SEC's, you know, new proposals, both on climate risk and ESG definition, right? So very optimistic there. Um, pessimistic, um, right, the, the, the troubles I see ahead, it's, you know, it's natural, right? You know, some investors are going to say, well, it was, you know, kind of fun, um, you know, investing in my ESG portfolio, but now it's underperforming. I think I want to go back to, quote, you know, value investing, and it's okay. I don't mind, you know, reloading up on fossil fuels, right? That's a, a, a very big challenge, right? Um, we have to, you know, just, a, a, again, um, challenges are, you know, pushing through these, the latest, you know, SEC proposals, right? There's a political movement, Right, that's moving against you know sustainable investing and and you know, unfortunately, um, you know, 
invoking a lot of confusion in this market. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I do believe that we will prevail eventually, but right, there are some like very fierce headwinds. And I, I do fear that ESG or sustainable investing will lose some ground in the short term. Well, if we lose the ESG label, I won't mind. <laughs> Desiree, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure and great to see you again in person. Thank you very much. If you'd like to learn more about investment opportunities at J.O. Hambro, please do contact your representative. Details about us, our funds, and our approach to investment are on our website. Just type J.O. Hambro into your favorite search engine. I'm Andrew Parry. This is Organizing the Future. Thank you for listening.